Praise the Lord. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 13. Paul has been talking by the Holy Ghost, or writing by the Holy Ghost, for uh, 12 chapters on um, uh, giving some airtight doctrinal information about Christianity being better than Judaism, better than the Old Testament priesthood, better than everything that uh, that the Jews had uh, had hung on to. Now, just as a, a matter of a, just a few moments of review, um, the churches in Galatia were experiencing persecution by the Jews to the degree that the Jews were coming from Jerusalem to try to tear things up and... and uh, uh, well, tear things up by um, influencing and trying to convince the, uh, the Gentile Christians to go back and keep the law and the sacrifices and things like that. The book of Galatians and the book of Hebrews were most probably attached one to another, uh, which is, uh, uh, in my opinion, the reason why Paul does not identify himself as the author of the book of Hebrews. But he said in, uh, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 11, he said, you see what a long letter I've written to you, talking to the Galatians. Well, six chapters isn't the longest letter that Paul wrote. It doesn't even qualify as as a medium-sized letter compared to some of the other ones that he wrote. So there must have been something else to it other than those six chapters for Paul to say, you see how long a letter I've written in my own hand. Well, that's one reason that we we think that uh, the book of Hebrews was attached to it because Paul addressed the answer to the problems in the churches of Galatia regarding the Gentiles in the Galatian letter and regarding the Jews in the letter to the Hebrews. Now, he must have known, since the Jews that were tearing up the churches in Galatia had come from Jerusalem, that this letter would be detached or, or taken, uh, copied, whatever, uh, which was common with, uh, with many of his letters. They would be recopied and sent to other places. He had to know that this message would get back to Jerusalem. And uh, consequently, he spent 12 chapters just absolutely tying the Jewish customs in knots showing how Jesus has fulfilled everything about Judaism, about how Judaism was just a, uh, a shadow uh, to instruct us about Jesus and to show us what Jesus would fulfill. But now Judaism has been done away with. All the laws, all the commandments, all the rituals, all the sacrifices, all that has been nullified, or a better way to say that would uh, would be fulfilled. But it's because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the law is now null and void. There is no old covenant left. And as a result, some people get upset when I say this or have gotten upset in the past. But the Jews are without covenant to God because there is no law of Moses anymore. It's been fulfilled by Jesus. Now, a lot of times the Jews uh, don't understand that and they don't accept that. And that's up to them. But Jesus is the only covenant that we have with God. The, the, uh, the covenant that God made with Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus. Therefore, the blessing of Abraham belongs to those who are in Christ. Now, one of the things that Paul has been talking about during these uh, previous 12 chapters, is how that under the old covenant, there were priests, and those that were priests were priests because they were born under the tribe of Levi. You had to be born into a certain tribe or born in the right manner, if you will, so that you could be a priest. But now there is no Old Testament priesthood left. Jesus is our high priest, and we, by being born again, accepting the sacrifice of Jesus, are now made kings and priests unto God for ourselves. So there's nobody else to go through other than Jesus. Well, now stop and think about it for a minute. Paul wouldn't say something different to the Jews than he's going to say to the Gentiles because it's all one message. It's all one gospel. It's what he called the message of grace or the gospel of grace. So how's he going to tell the Jews to live now? He's telling the Jewish Christians, it's who the letter was written to, but he knows that non-believing Jews are going are to be aware of this message too. How do you instruct non 
uh, well, how do I say this? How do you instruct those who are no longer under the law that may have thought they were still under the law? They were trying to mix Christianity and Judaism together and come up with some way to please God. How do you now instruct those people to live? Now, folks, this is really instructive for me, it, 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 at least in my opinion, in the last days, because you got a lot of people talking about the grace of God, but very few of them are telling you how to live. It's all about what Jesus has done. It's all about the finished work of Jesus. And, and, but how do you live? So many people that are preaching grace step back from and draw away from, shy away from the, any, any instruction on how to live because it sounds like you're being legalistic. It sounds like you're, you're implying, in, imposing laws again or rules again on people. But how's the Holy Ghost going to handle it? We know how people handle it, but how's the Holy Ghost going to handle it? Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. He said, you've been called into liberty. That means you're free. You've been called into freedom, not into legalism, not into laws, not into rules, not into commandments. You've been called into liberty. You've been called to be free. Well, how are we called? Through Jesus. So you've been called into freedom, but then he goes further. He said, only use not your liberty as an occasion to serve the flesh. Then he winds up talking about walking in love. He winds up talking further in the chapter about walking in the spirit and not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. So how is the Holy Ghost going to handle it with Jews who have lived all their lives based on laws and commandments? For this reason, chapter 13 is, is very, very important for today. Because here's the Holy Ghost telling people how to live as priests. Now that you're born into the kingdom of God, born into the family of God, you couldn't be a priest under the old covenant unless you were born into the right family. You can't be a priest under the new covenant unless you're born into the right family either. That right family is through Jesus. But now that we're born again by the sacrifice and the, and the work of Jesus... How are we supposed to live? What's the Holy Ghost going to tell us about how to live? That's what chapter 13 is all about. Because Judaism is done away with, because you're not under the law, because you're not under the commandments, because you have been set free by the finished work of Jesus, here's how to live. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. First thing he makes mention of is the new law or the law of the new covenant, and that is Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I've loved you. Well, that's brotherly love, isn't it? Didn't he love us with brotherly love? Of course. Paul's saying the same thing that Jesus said. He's saying the law of love is first and foremost. Now, these are not rules. These are not commandments. These are not, oh, God's going to get you if you don't do this. It's very simply, as a priest, because of the finished work of Jesus, these are the principles where God expects you to live, uh, expects us to live according to. Now, here's why. John said it this way. He said, if you're born of love, you're going to produce love. Paul said... If you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, you'll produce works of righteousness. In other words, you produce after your own kind. That's God's original plan. That was his original commandment or law in the, in the, uh, in the earth when he created the earth. Everything produces after its own kind. If you're righteous, you produce works of righteousness. Not because if you don't, God's going to come down on you, because that's who you're made. If you're born of love, then you're going to produce love works. Not because God's going to get you if you don't, and so it's some hard task that you've got to fulfill, but because that's your nature. That's what the Holy Ghost is saying. He's saying because you've been made righteous in the, uh, according, uh, by the finished work of Jesus, these are the things that your life should produce. Number one, love. You're free to love. Now, there's two sides to this. We're free to love, but if we love legalistically, if we let the law or legalism come back in on that, then love won't be genuine. It'll be something we're trying to do to earn points with God. He's talking about doing it because of who we've been made by the blood of Jesus. Number one, he says, verse one, he says, let brotherly love continue. The second thing is in verse two. Here's the second principle for us to live as priests. 
He says, be hospitable, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. In other words, he's saying, be hospitable. Now, the other side of that is, if you do it legalistically, it won't be sincere. But he's just simply saying, be open to everybody and treat everybody like they're uh, sent from heaven. That's an aspect of love, isn't it? Verse 3, here's the third principle. He says, remember them that are in bonds as bound with them and them which suffer adversity and being yourself, as being yourselves also in the body. In other words, he's saying have compassion and pray for people that have it tougher than you. Now, folks, we have a tendency to think nobody has it tougher than us, whatever our situation is. We have such a tendency to be focused on ourselves saying, well, yeah, other people may have trouble, but they just don't know what it's like for me. But Paul's saying there's always going to be people that are in tougher spots than you. And remember them. He's saying be free to pray for others as an act of love. Not because you got to pray an hour a day or God's mad at you. But we're free to pray and see supernatural things happen because we're in Christ. Verse 4. He said, marriage is honorable unto all and the bed is undefiled. The word bed is there is literally the word sex act. I'm sure some monk translated it bed because he couldn't handle writing it down some other way. He's saying marriage is honorable in all and the marriage bed or the sex act in marriage is undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Now, folks, there's two things you need to realize about this. He's saying don't be legalistic about sex. So many times people that are legalistic in, in their, their, uh, the sex life in marriage, it's somebody's controlling when we have sex, how we have sex, how often we have sex, and all this other kind of stuff. And there's this mindset that's built up, and the church has been marvelous in creating this judgment and condemnation about sex. It's like God doesn't know people do it. I heard one minister say this, and I've kind of adopted it for my own. The fact that God created sex is proof to me that God's a good God. Now, I know people aren't used to hearing things like that in church. Well, here's the Holy Ghost talking, folks. Now, as I said, there's two things about this. He said, don't let legalism or religious notions invade your sex life and marriage. How many marriages do we know that have been crippled by this religious attitude or this legalistic attitude towards sex and in many cases destroyed? That's not the way it's supposed to be. There was a, a couple in my office one time. They had all kinds of problems. And uh, and she just kind of summed it up like this. She was really mad. And she just kind of summed it up like this. And she was saying it as an insult, trying to embarrass him in front of me. And she said, the only reason you married me was, only reason you married me was for sex. I'm sitting there thinking, lady, you don't know how scriptural that is. <laughs> now, if the point is God wants you to be a priest in your marriage, which covers most of the people. Most people were married in his day. Most Christians are married today. If God wants you to live as a priest in your marriage, why did he talk about sex? He could have said, husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands. Couldn't he? He could have talked about marriage in a lot of different ways, but he didn't. He talked about the sexual aspect of the marriage. What is the Holy Ghost trying to say? He's trying to say in order to have a good marriage, it's going to have to be built on the foundation of a good and healthy sex life. Okay, I'll let you discuss that at home afterwards. Verse 5, next principle. Let your conversation, that means manner of life, be without covetousness. The word covetousness we've talked about before, it means love of money. In other words, you need to be a priest over your money. You need to be a priest over your attitude where money is concerned. Let your manner of life be without covetousness. 
In other words, without the love of money and be content. We're free to be content. Why? Because we got the power of God on the inside of us that will meet our needs. You don't have to struggle to have things. Now, folks, realize these people, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed in a matter of three to five years after this letter is written. It takes a while to get from the letter to get from Rome to where they are. It could take up to a year for it just to get there. Paul's in a hurry. He's trying to encourage these people. Titus is going to destroy the city in 70 AD. Now, we don't know how much Paul knows about that, but we do know that he would be aware of the fact that Jesus prophesied it and said that it would happen before the end of the generation. Well, it's been 30, about 35 years up until that point in time. They don't have much further to go. So he says, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. This phrase, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, is five different scriptures wrapped up and and summarized in one. And Paul uses six negatives in this verse. It's impossible to translate. They did as good a job as you can. But it literally says, I will know not never leave thee. I will know not never forsake thee. It's a mouthful, isn't it? It's saying you as a priest can govern your attitude and your actions regarding money because God is always on your side. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man will do unto me. God's my source. It doesn't matter what money I've got in my pocket. I've got faith in my heart and faith in my heart will produce money. So I don't have to chase after money. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, material things, financial things will be added to you. Can you see what he's saying? What's the Holy Ghost tell him next about the way to live? Verse 7, remember them which have the rule over you and have, uh, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. He's saying, submit yourselves. You are free as a priest to submit yourself to God's order in the church. Yeah, but, but Pastor Mike, I went to another church before and, and the pastor ran off with the music minister and the church I was at before that, the pastor ran off with the money and I, I'm just not going to trust anybody anymore. Well, folks, those things happen. We might as well just face facts. Those things happen. People fall. People are human. No matter how well they may be anointed or, or how greatly God may use them, people have a tendency to fall. Anybody can fall into sin. So what do we do? Verse eight, Jesus never changes. How many people do you know that have given up on either church or God or whatever because of somebody, some preacher, some minister that did the wrong thing? And they use that as their excuse why they're never going to get involved or never going to go back to church ever again. I'm just not into organized religion. I'm going to stay home and love Jesus on my own. Can't do it. Paul is saying, remember, focus on not the minister's life, not the minister's outward actions, but follow his faith. You know, there, we even find people that have fallen morally who are operating in faith and can follow that example of faith before they fell. Why? Because Jesus is always the same. Well, if Jesus is always the same, how is he going to fix those problems? He's going to pick some other in, uh, imperfect human to take their place. Yeah, but if they're imperfect too, then we're liable to set ourselves up for another, for another fall, another disappointment. That's why we have to keep our eyes on Jesus who never changes. Now, we use verse 8 to to talk about healing being the same today as it was yesterday, and that's true. We talk about uh, the power of God, the miracles of God being the same now as they were in Jesus' ministry. But the context that he's saying is you can submit yourself to God's spiritual order even if somebody messes up because Jesus never changes, and he's the one that's ultimately in charge. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I gave my tithes to some church, and the pastor ran off with the money. If you gave your tithes to the church, you messed up. 
What? We're supposed to be given our tithes as a sign that we believe Jesus is risen from the dead. It's not up to you what I do with the money. It's not up to you with what other, some other preacher does with the money. If they do right with the money, God will credit it to their account. If they do wrong with the, money, with the money, God will hold it against them. But you're off the hook because you gave it to God. If people would understand that, they wouldn't get offended by stuff. I've seen people leave the church because they changed the color of the carpet. Well, I just don't like that color. I wanted it to be another color. Well, who cares? Well, I just don't think the money ought to be spent that way. Well, then pray that God takes it out on the guy who spent it. But it doesn't change Jesus. You see the point I'm trying to make? That's what Paul's saying. He's saying you can be, you are free as a priest to live your life under God's spiritual authority and under the authority that he sets up in the church because Jesus never changes. Now that brings us to verse 9. We got this far last week, I think. It says, be not carried away with diverse and strange doctrines. How is that tied in with the other? The people that have diverse and strange doctrines, by and large, are the ones that get out there on their own out from under God's spiritual authority. And it's real easy to say, well, I, I just follow Jesus. I don't follow man, I follow Jesus. Well, folks, if you can't follow somebody you can see, there's no way you're following God who you can see. And I found that most of the time the people that get the weirdest are the ones that stay out by, outside of church. So many times people come in and they've got this pet doctrine they want to share with me. Well, I know why they haven't been in church, because nobody's going to accept that goofy doctrine. It won't stand up to scrutiny. That's where strangeness and diverse doctrines and stuff like that come from. The devil gets somebody out by themselves and takes advantage of their lack of knowledge. I don't know if you know this or not, and maybe I'll save this for later on in the service. But the church is the, is the, the foundation. Literally, the church is the foundation for the moral well-being of a nation. You look at the book of Acts. Ephesus was a, was a center for the worship of, Di, uh, the worship of Diana. The greatest Diana of the Ephesians, they screamed during the, during the mob riots. Do you know what worship of Diana was all about? People would come from all over the place to have sex in the temple with either the priests or the priestesses. And that was their way to worship. That's how these guys would, would make money. They'd sell these little idols, and you had to present the little idol to the priest or the priestess in order to have sex. That's the way they worshipped them. But look at how God turned things around when the, when the gospel got in there. The, the city of Ephesus became a, a headquarters for revival so that all of Asia heard the word in the space of two years. It went from being a capital or a headquarters for priest worship through sexual immorality into a, 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 a hub for the gospel going forth. Why? Because churches came into being. You look at the decline of any, any, uh, look at the decline of America. You can trace it right back to the decline of the church. Now, why is that? Because by and large, churches aren't teaching the word. And so what happens? Christians just believe whatever they want to believe. We've got this gay marriage thing up before the Supreme Court now. Look at how many Christians are siding in with, well, I think people ought to just have the freedom to marry whoever they want to marry. Well, whether they know it or not, they're saying, and what God says doesn't count. Well, what God says is the only thing that counts for me. Oh, that's just, you're just homophobe, Pastor Mike. No, I just believe what God said. I'm not against anybody, but what God said is true, no matter what the polls say. No matter what the spin is, what God said is true. And God said homosexuality is a sin. Yeah, but that was the Old Testament, Pastor Mike. Jesus is all about love. Well, show me where God ever changes. 
God was pretty clear on that. He said, I'm God, I change not. That means if homosexuality was a sin under the old covenant, God who hadn't changed still thinks homosexuality is a sin today. Now, I know that's not popular. I know that's not a good Facebook post. But it's the truth. And the question should be for Christians who are building their lives on the Word, the question should be, what does God say? We know what the polls say. Dear Lord, dear Lord they're going to show us what the polls say. But what does God say? You see what he's getting to? That's why he says, remember or focus on the Word. Be not cared about with diverse and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. Please notice that phrase, that the heart be established with grace. Your heart is supposed to be established in the grace of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, we'll find out if we keep reading. It says, for it is a good thing that the heart is established with, be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Let me read to you from Colossians chapter 2. If you want to know what the grace of God is that Paul is talking about, it's very easy to see from this uh, from this passage of Scripture, the, uh, the comparison of these passages of Scripture. I'm going to start reading in beginning in verse 13 of chapter 2 of Colossians. It says, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. That's, a, that's the Mosaic law. Blotting it out, doing away with it, fulfilling it. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. That's why the law is done away with. Jesus nailed it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, trying, up, trying over them in it, literally in himself. Spiritually, God made an open show of Jesus' victory over the devil. What does that do for us then? Verse 16, let no man therefore... Judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So when he talks about the, the, the grace of God, your heart being established in the grace of God, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking in both cases. He's saying don't focus on meats. So the grace of God has to refer back to what he meant in verse 15 about the finished and triumphant work of Jesus. And that's the thing that your heart, your spirit should be established in, and that is that Jesus finished the work. There's nothing left for you to do to earn points with God because Jesus finished the work. Therefore, don't let anybody judge you in what you eat or what you drink. Now, remember who's saying that. Paul, who says, I'll never eat meat again if it causes my brother to stumble. He chose to put himself in a position that his actions, whether it's what he ate, what he drank, or what, the way he lived in any way, would not adversely affect somebody else's faith. But that's a position and a decision Paul made for himself. Probably something God dealt with him about, but he never preaches that that's the way everybody else has to do. He never says, now don't eat meat because people might be offended. He just says, I'll never do it. But he never preaches that that's the way it has to be for everybody else. Instead, he says, it doesn't really matter if you eat meat offered to idols because an idol is nothing. Not everybody understands that. But that's the way that it is. Do you see what he's saying? So he says, don't let strange doctrines pull you over into things where you allow yourself to be judged by legalistic measures or legalistic means. Because it's a good thing 
for your heart, your spirit to be established with the finished work of Jesus, not with meats or any other rule or regulation, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Now that gets us to the, all this is summary from last week. Now that gets us to what we need to talk about tonight. Sorry. I will finish, I promise. Okay. Oh, law of Moses is made up of two things. Really, the old covenant was made up of two things. Number one, the commandments. Number two, the sacrifice. The sacrifice wasn't working anything without keeping the commandments. The commandments weren't going to work anything without the sacrifice of blood. So there were two equal parts. There were two legs of the old covenant, the commandments and the sacrifice. He's just covered the commandments. Verses 1 through 9 is how we should live in life, not because they're commandments and God will get you if you don't, but because these are the principles whereby the Holy Ghost says this is the work that we should produce in our lives because we're born again and made righteous by the blood of Jesus. What about the sacrifices? Verse 10. He says, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. Notice we still have an altar. It's just not the one in the temple. Now, the word altar is the same word used in the Old Testament for altar. It means the place where the blood is shed. It says we have an altar. But the people that are still serving the tabernacle, people that are still serving by offering Old Testament sacrifices, and many of the Christians have been influenced or talked into it or forced into it by the Jews. He says the people that are still offering sacrifices, meaning the high priest, meaning the priesthood, meaning the, the, the Jews, Primarily unsaved Jews, I'm sure he's talking about. He says they have no right to eat of the altar of our, that we have. We have an altar. And that altar is a place where sacrifices are to be made. And they have no part in it. For, verse 11, the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without, meaning outside the camp. Now let me, let me talk to you about this for a minute. You guys know how the temple works. We've talked a little bit about it. We've referred to some of the elements of the uh, uh, the furniture and the elements of the tabernacle and the temple and, and that kind of stuff. The Day of Atonement, the sacrifices that the people would bring, they brought their sacrifices to the altar. Now, there was an outer court, there was an inner court, and there was a holy place that made up the whole temple structure. The outer court is where there was... Uh, um, the laver, where the priest did the ceremonial washing, and uh, and the altar outside. And that altar outside is where the blood would be spilled, splashed up against the altar. The animals would be put, at least some of the animals, not all of them, but certain of the animals would be placed on the altar as a burnt offering. Then from there you went to the outer, uh, the, uh, the inner court where there was uh, the table of showbread, there was the, um, uh, the candlestick and um, something else. I'm forgetting what the other thing is. And then you go past that into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. Everything regarding the Day of Atonement sacrifice, everything regarding the Old Testament sacrifices, all took place inside the temple structure, the, temp, the, out, the perimeter wall of the temple. Where was Jesus crucified? In the temple? Why not? Why wouldn't Jesus be crucified in the temple if he, he offered the sacrifice to fulfill the law of Moses? If he's the Passover, if he's the lamb that was slain for the, the sacrificial lamb, the day of atonement lamb for the nation of Israel as well as for the world, why wasn't he sacrificed in the temple? Doesn't seem like he would have fulfilled the, the type or the, the, the shadow of the Old Testament since he wasn't killed and sacrificed in the temple. 
in order for it to fulfill the type, it would seem to us that the high priest, rather than turning him over to the Romans to be crucified, crucifixion was against the uh, Jewish law. They couldn't crucify anybody. It was an unworthy, unclean manner of death. All they could do was pronounce him worthy of death and give him over to the Romans for the Romans to crucify. Crucifixion was a Gentile and really a barbaric Gentile means of death. But Jesus was crucified by the Romans on Golgotha. Why? Notice the next verse. It says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without or outside the gate. You know why Jesus died outside the gate? You know why Jesus, and if you've ever been to Israel, the, the Golgotha, where you can still see the, the, the little hill there, it's just north of uh, uh, the old walls of Jerusalem. It's uh, north of the Damascus Gate. It's <laughs> right next to it is an Arab bus stop. Yeah. The reason Jesus was, uh, and, and that place outside that north wall was a place where animals, the carcasses that were left that were offered as burnt offerings, they didn't all burn up on the altar. They were taken off after being burned for a little bit. They didn't burn all the way through. They took off those sacrifices and took them outside the north end of the wall out to the area where Jesus was sacrificed. Jesus was sacrificed on the hill, but at the foot of that hill. That's the place that was considered the burial ground or the, un, the place of the unclean that had been offered as a sacrifice. So when Jesus was offered as a sacrifice, when he was crucified outside the gate, what it meant was Jesus was like the Passover lamb who was sent into the wilderness. He died outside of the gate because his blood was not just the fulfillment of the law of, of Moses. His blood was sacrificed for the whole world. In other words, his blood wasn't just for the Jews. It was for everybody. And that's why he had to be sacrificed outside the gate. If Jesus had been killed in the temple, if somebody had slit his throat in the temple, then he would have only been a savior for the Jews. So what does Paul say? As a result, because Jesus was killed outside the temple, verse 13, let us go forth therefore unto him outside the camp bearing his reproach. He's saying Jesus and the glory of God, the presence of God is not in the temple. What are you going there for? Now, folks, Jesus moved, or the glory of God, rather, moved out of the temple 35 years, or, well, roughly 35 years, 30, about 30 years, I guess, 30 to 32 years prior to this point in time that Paul is writing. You remember the Bible says on the day that Jesus was crucified, it says there was a great earthquake and the rocks were torn and broken apart. And it says the, the veil in the temple that separated the, the uh, holy place from the holy of holies was torn from top to bottom. This, uh, this, uh, Josephus tells us a little bit about this. He says it was 30 feet high and a foot thick. Think about that, a foot thick. It was ripped from top to bottom, not bottom to top, but it's like an angel came down, grabbed hold of that thing, and just ripped it in two. And the glory of God moved out. The, the high priests could go in, they, they could see into there. And uh, all the priesthood that went into the holy place could see that there's no glory of God. There's no presence. There's no cloud in there anymore. Where did it go? It's not in the temple anymore after Jesus was crucified. It's outside available for the Jews. I mean, available for the Gentiles, just like it was the Jews. So he says, let us go to him. Where is him? Meaning Jesus. He's not in the temple. He's not on Mount Moriah anymore. He's not where the temple was built. He's outside the gate. He's available for the world, the Gentiles as well as the Jews. 
Now, notice he says what we're supposed to do when we go to him, bearing his reproach. Now, I know a lot of times people talk about the reproach of Christ and, oh, it's so tough being a Christian. Folks, being a Christian is the greatest thing you can have. It's great being a Christian. This being a Christian stuff, being the reproach of, of, of Christ, that's hogwash. Look at what we've got. We've got righteousness. We've got peace. We've got joy. We've got the power of God. We've got everything. That's not a reproach. You know who we're approached, a, a reproach to? Religion. The people that hate us are religious folks. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but what about the atheists? Most atheists, real atheists, have made atheism a religion. It's not a matter of they just don't believe there's a God and you believe whatever you want to. It's we don't believe there's a God, and if you believe there is one, you're wrong and need to be done away with. That makes it a religion. Christianity is a reproach under religions. Jesus, I mean, uh, what's his name? Paul said the thing that, lay, that, uh, that, that he always dealt with, never got away from, was the Jews lying in wait for him. Why? Because if freedom in Christ is the real thing, their religion is wrong. Well, why do Muslims want to kill Christians? Because if Jesus is the way to heaven, the Koran means nothing. There's no way, there's no two ways about it, folks. It's either right or it's wrong. If Jesus, it was literally accurate in what he said, was he's the only way to God, then that means there's no other religion on the face of the earth that can stand up to Christianity. It's not Christianity and other things too. It's Christianity or other things. And so all the other religions have to try to destroy Christianity. That's where the reproach is. You're going to be a reproach to religious people. Well, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to love them and just enjoy our freedom. Show them how much fun it is to be a Christian. Pick your chin up off the ground and quit walking around, moving around, saying, oh, things are so hard. And say, praise God, things are great because we've got the power of God in us. He goes further, verse 14. For here, meaning on the earth, have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. You know who has cities? Religions. Catholicism has Rome. Islam has Mecca. Who else? Mormonism has Salt Lake City. The Baptists have Dallas. <laughs> Whatever. Nearly every other religion on the face of the earth, every rules-oriented legalistic group has got some city. The Word of Faith people have Tulsa. We'll throw ourselves in there. Everybody's looking for a city. Paul says we don't have one. As great, Judaism has Jerusalem. As great as Jerusalem is, and if you've ever been there, there's something about that place. There's a spiritual pull. But it's not the, it's not the physical aspects of it at all. It's because that's where the new Jerusalem is going to come and sit down upon. That's what the pull is. Because that's the place where the new city is going to come down. But Paul is saying, remember what Paul talked about some of those heroes of faith? He said, for example, Abraham didn't build himself a house. He lived in tents because he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He didn't have a natural city because he's looking for something that God made. That's what Paul is saying about us. He's saying we don't have a city. We don't have a headquarters. We are looking for something from heaven to come. Verse 15, by him therefore, because these things are true, because Judaism has been done away with, because we've got an altar where we offer sacrifices that the unsaved have no part in, other religions have no part in, because we've got a responsibility 
to offer those sacrifices and be pleasing unto God because we're born again, because we're kings and priests unto him, by him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise. What's our sacrifice? Praise. Now, how much should we do that? Notice it says continually. The original language, if you look that up in the Greek, you'll find out that that word continually means in everything. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise in everything. Think of all the times Paul talked about praise. He said, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you in 1 Thessalonians 5. He said, uh, in everything uh, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God in Ephesians chapter 6. He talked about in everything you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord. He's talking about praising God continually in every situation and every circumstance. Not for everything, because God's not the one doing everything. Don't praise God for the stuff the devil's doing in your life. Or bringing into your life. But you can still praise God in the middle of the devil bringing that stuff to you or against you. You can praise God because he gives you the power to overcome the stuff the devil is bringing against you. So he says, let us therefore offer the sacrifice of praise. I don't know about you, but I a whole lot prefer that over blood sacrifices. I'm glad I don't have to bring a lamb to church ever so often for us to make a sacrifice. But we do have sacrifices to make. The Old Testament, the law of Moses, and the uh, the ritual sacrifices of the Old Covenant were types and shadows, meaning we don't make their sacrifices, but they point to a sacrifice that we do make on behalf of on behalf of ourselves unto God. What is that? A sacrifice of praise. Let us therefore offer the sacrifice of praise in everything. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. Not the increase of our cattle or the increase of our kind, but the fruit of our lips. Then he goes further and says in verse 16, but to do good, the word, the the phrase to do good means produce divine works. But producing divine works and to communicate, the word communicate means to give offerings. Not just talking about offerings in church, it means giving period. When you give to somebody, you're giving them an offering. We think of offerings just because it's offerings time in a service and that type of thing, but that's not what offerings means in the Bible. If I have on my heart to give you $50, I've given you an offering. You didn't collect offerings, but that's what is considered. Any gift that we give as a result of God putting something on our heart or just having a desire to help somebody, that's an offering. That's a gift. So he says, here's two other things that are considered sacrifices and worthy sacrifices. Number one, producing divine works. And two, giving to others. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, that's a sacrifice, God is well pleased. So he mentions three things that we're supposed to do. He says, produce good works or divine works. How can we do that? Just as we said before, Paul said, those that are righteous will do works of righteousness. It's not something we're trying to do. It's not something we're looking out for and saying, oh, well, let's see, I didn't do anything today. I better get something done before the end of the day so God's not mad at me. No, it's because we are righteous. Those who are righteous will produce works of righteousness. It's a natural thing, folks. Not a law, not a commandment, not a do it or else. Same thing with giving. If you're a giver, you give. There's two kinds of peoples. Brother Hagin used to say there's kickers and there's givers. Givers never kick and kickers never give. If you're a giver, if you've got the love of God on the inside of you, remember what the, the, the basis of the foundation of giving is. For God so loved that he gave. If you're born of love, you're a giver. Now, you may have to develop that. If you if your natural inclination is to be stingy and to hold back, you may have to develop that. You may have to make that a conscious effort. But it won't be for long, and all of a sudden it'll be so much fun for you, you'll just give. Givers give. 
That's what he's saying. So we're sacrificing praise, offering the fruit of our lips. We're doing good works. We're producing works of righteousness. And because we are children of God, we give to other people. He says those are things that please God. Those are our sacrifices. And the altar is the altar of your heart. We do these things from our heart. Now, verse 17. Verse 17 goes back to verse 7. Second time in the 13th chapter, Paul says, concerning spiritual authority, obey them that have the rule over you, spiritual rule, and submit yourselves for they, spiritual rulers, watch for your souls as that they may give account, as they that must give account, and that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable unto you. Now, verse 7 said, remember, the word remember means to concentrate on. He's saying concentrate on the message. That, the, that your spiritual rulers, he's talking about pastors, there may be other people that qualify for that too, but he's talking about pastors. At that point in time, the church in Jerusalem has got a lot of different churches, or the, 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 the Christians in Jerusalem have a lot of different churches, and most of them are house churches. We know James was a pastor, but there's got to be a lot more other, a lot of other pastors too, because we know just in the first four, ver- four chapters of the book of Acts, the church is at least 8,000 people strong. Where are you going to keep all those people? Where are you going to minister to all those people? We're going to take care of them and, and teach them and stuff. It's house to house. So God's raised up all kinds of pastors, especially 35 years down the road. So he's saying obey those that have the rule. Concentrate on the message that God gives them to minister to you because it's for your benefit and you should be able to follow their faith. Now he says in verse 17, obey them that have the rule over you. If Paul is speaking by the Holy Ghost, then the Holy Ghost is really into this pastor stuff. Now, I know a lot of Christians aren't. I get that. But if the Holy Ghost is inspiring Paul to say this, then the Holy Ghost must really be into spiritual authority. And all that means, folks, is that I have authority here. God has given me a job. If something happens that, that takes away from or goes in a different direction than what God wants it to be, then I have the responsibility to stop it and get it back on track. But as soon as church is over, as soon as we say amen, you're on your own. I have no authority over you whatsoever. It just means the order of things that God sets up. I've had people say, Pastor Mike, I need to be under your spiritual authority. And they think that means I I have some say-so in their life. I have no say-so in anybody's life. I don't have a whole lot in mine. I talk to my wife about most of that. I'm anointed to teach. I'm anointed to communicate and teach the Word to you. I'm not anointed to live. I have to work out my own salvation just like you do. I've got to live up to my own preaching just like I hope you live up to. And I can't make you do what the Bible says, even if I know I'm telling you the truth. And for that reason, Paul says, obey those that have the rule over you. That doesn't mean do what I tell you to do. It means obey the word that the Lord gives me to communicate to you. It means be a doer of the word. Because there's coming a day that I'm going to have to give an account. And if I can give an account over those And those that I can give an account of that are doers of the word, it'll bring great joy. But there's a lot of people that won't hear the word, and so it becomes grievous to give an account for them. That's what he's saying. Verse 18. Pray for us. Now Paul is going to start making his ending statements, concluding statements. He says, pray for us. For we trust we have a good conscience. In all things, willing to live honestly. The word honestly is literally the word honorably. Now, it's interesting that Paul says that the basis of his request for prayer is his honorable lifestyle. 
Now, he's just talked about spiritual authority. If Paul is saying that prayers, the, the, um, uh, the request for prayers in his case is based on their knowledge of his honorable lifestyle, then we should expect that those that are put in positions of spiritual rule in the church should be, have, should be experiencing or living uh, the same honorable lifestyle too, shouldn't it? It amazes me the way some people blindly follow other people. And I think to myself, wake up. Can't you see that they're taking advantage of you? Paul talked about false ministers more. He warned the church against false ministers more than any other thing that he warned them against. He warned them against people taking advantage of them in the church a lot more than he warned them against the devil's attacks. A lot more. Why? Because people have a tendency to accept somebody's brashness and rudeness as being an anointing or some kind of gift from God. Well, folks, rude is rude. You don't need an anointing to be rude. Paul talked about people taking advantage of them. He said they will slap you in your face. Not talking about literally, physically, but he said they slap you and then are only there to take your money. He said, wake up. What are you following these people for? So we should expect to see honor and honesty in those who have spiritual authority, shouldn't we? Paul said something about this to the, in Acts chapter 20 to the elders at Ephesus. He said, I've taught you, you know my manner of life, how that I've taught you both publicly and from house to house. The church, is, the church was in houses. So he says, I've lived the same life in private that I've lived publicly. I don't know how anybody does otherwise. It just doesn't make sense to me. That's one reason I get so frustrated with politics. Because you see how politicians live when they don't think anybody's looking or when things catch up to them, but then they stand up and give a speech, and you think, this, this guy can't be the same person. Well, unfortunately, that's the way a lot of preachers are too. And we should have the wisdom of God to recognize who's appropriate to follow and who isn't. Amen? So he said, pray for us, for we trust that we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly or honorably. But I beseech you the rather to do this. I want you to pray for me, but really what I want you to pray about is this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Paul must still be in prison. I want to get out of here. Pray that I get out of here. Verse 20. Now, the rest of the chapter is Paul just making his his salutary statements. But they're instructive because of what we know happens in Jerusalem in just a few short years. He said, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Now to somebody, for somebody that's been teaching the whole time that the law of Moses has been done away with, that it's not a matter of gaining points or, or favor with God through the things that you do. He sure spends a lot of time talking about being well-pleasing to God. Now, that can only mean that we can live lives that are not well-pleasing to God, even though we're saved. There's no other option. There's no other possibility. So he's talking about living a life well-pleasing unto God, not to keep some law, not to keep somebody else's rules or commandments or anything else, but because this is the way God wants us to live. Well, what do we know? We know God doesn't want us to make sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrifices. We know God doesn't want us to keep the law of Moses. We know God doesn't want us worshiping at the temple. He wants us worshiping every day in our hearts. He wants us offering the sacrifice of praise in every situation. He wants us producing works of righteousness. He wants us giving and communicating to other people because that's what love does. 
We know those things because he's already told us. Now he says that God is, number one, a God of peace. Why is that important? Because the things that caused Titus to come against Jerusalem and destroy it have already begun. You go back and look at the historical accounts and historical records, you'll find out that the city of Jerusalem was in upheaval for several years prior to being destroyed by, by Titus in 70 A.D. So what does he say about God? He says God's a God of peace. And most of the people causing the trouble are the Jewish, the, the religious folks. They're rising up against the Romans. They're trying to take back certain things. It's the same thing that Jesus had in some of his, uh, some of what was going on in Jesus' day with Simon Zelotus and some of the terrorist operations and guerrilla operations and stuff like that that was going on too. Everybody in the, from the, the time that Israel got their own land has been trying to restore the kingdom to Israel and Israel to be in charge of themselves and so forth. But, of course, that never happened because Israel always disobeyed God. So he calls God the God of peace first and foremost. Now, your city may be in turmoil, but God's a God of peace. He's telling them in their current situation and in the years to come and the things that are going to happen, no matter what goes on around you, you can have peace because God's the God of peace. I don't know a time in, in our lifetime when that's been more important for us to know. The world may be sliding downhill quickly toward the gates of hell, but we can have peace. That's one of the things that the Bible says about the last days, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than the the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place, the church, the last day church, will I give peace? Because he's the God of peace. So the God of peace that brought again Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant made you perfect in every good work. Well, but Pastor Mike, I'm not perfect in every good work. What am I going to do? The word perfect is interesting because it does not mean without flaw or without failure. It means to adjust and repair. It's the Greek word katarzio. It means to adjust and to repair. So it's saying God who raised Jesus from the dead and through his blood entered into an everlasting covenant with us will, through adjusting and repairing, cause you to come forth with every good work. What does that mean? That means doing good works is something we learn to do. It's a process. You may not be performing the works that you should be in your life now, but work toward them. Do what you know to do today. Continue to follow the word. Continue to be doers of the word. Renew your mind to the word. And tomorrow you'll be producing more than you do today. It's through adjusting and repairing. God doesn't expect you to be perfect because you're saved. I don't know of anybody that is but me. There was this one guy, but he messed up. No, it's through adjusting and repairing. We all mess up. We all miss it. So what do we do? We make an adjustment and repair what we did wrong and come back over into the place of doing good works. Make you perfect, adjust and repair in every good work to do his will. God has a will for you that is accomplished through our lifestyle. And thank God through the finished work of Jesus, we can live Jesus' life. Here on the earth. Working in you that which is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. And I beseech you, verse 22, almost done. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation. The word exhortation means to call near. The word suffer means to bear. In other words, he's saying, accept these things that I'm calling you near with. Accept this truth that I'm calling you near to God by. 
for I have written the letter unto you in a few words. Now, Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, as we mentioned before, he said, you see what a large letter I've written to you, unto you in my own hand. Well, if we're right in the, the assumption, and most of the evidence, the best evidence I can see, identifies the book of Galatians attached to the book of Hebrews, which would be a long letter, certainly longer than anything else Paul ever wrote. He said he wrote in his own hand. Most of the letters that he wrote, he dictated it either through Timothy or Titus or somebody else that was in his company. He said he wrote all this stuff by hand. Now, in Galatians 6, 11, he's saying, I wrote a long letter. Now, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22, he's saying, I wrote a few words. Which is it? Well, there's two ways a few words can be interpreted. One can mean just what it says, a few words, meaning the length of the letter. But the other has to do with the length of time. Now, since he's already said it's a long letter in Galatians chapter 6, that indicates to me that it should read you. Uh, well, let me read it again. I beseech you, brethren, suffer, bear the word of exhortation, the word that calls you near unto God, for I have written a letter unto you because time is short. Now, folks, if he writes this, and we don't know exactly what the date is of this, that this was written, but if he writes this in 68 A.D., it could be as late as 68 A.D., it could take a year for this thing to get to him, which means they've only got a year before, it, before they're destroyed. Paul seemed to be in, in, in the know about time being short for some reason. Whether he knew whether God had revealed to him or not, I don't know. I, I'm not willing to go that far. But he knew something was coming because he identifies that time is short. Now, there's also some other way that you could look at this. A few words could mean there's a lot more that I could have told you, but I'm going to cut this off here. I think both of them are probably accurate. But I think he's talking about time. I wrote these things because time is short. Well, it was for Jerusalem. Verse 23, know you that brother, notice the word hour is in italics, that means the translators added it. Know you that brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom if he comes shortly, I will see you. So what is he saying? He just asked for them to pray that he gets out of jail. He just prayed that he that they would pray for him, that he would come soon. And he says, if Timothy, who has been set free, indicating that Paul has not, if Timothy comes... He's expecting their prayers to get him out so that he can return unto them soon. It's interesting because in my Bible, I've got a Nelson Bible. It says in verse 23, know you that brother Timothy, our brother Timothy is set at liberty. And then at the end of the chapter, it says written to the Hebrews from Italy by Timothy. So the author is saying our brother Timothy, and then they're saying Timothy was the author. Well, that wouldn't make sense. Couldn't be Timothy. Well, if it's not Timothy, it's somebody that certainly knows Paul's message. And and Paul said that he wrote this with his own hand. Well, it certainly sounds like Paul. It's certainly his message. So he says, if Timothy comes to me, I expect to get out of here. We don't know exactly if he did or not. We know that um, when Paul talked to, to the Philippians, he said that he had a decision to make. He said he was ready to go home. But he was in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which was far better. But then he said, I know it's better for you if I stay here. So I've decided that I'm going to stay here for your sake. So that can't be, the, what he talks to the Philippians about, can't be the end of his imprisonment. Or can't be the end of his life that came at, uh, at the end of his imprisonment. But then he talks to Timothy later on and he says, I'm ready to depart. I'm ready to go home. Well, here he's saying if Timothy comes, that he'll return to them shortly. So... Second Timothy's got to be after this. 
when Paul said to Timothy, I'm ready to go home, it's got to be after this, right? So we don't know. We don't know if Paul was released or not. There are some reports that say Paul was, uh, uh, when the persecution of um, uh, the burning of Rome took place, that uh, Paul was uh, crucified and killed by Nero as an example to the Christians who he blamed the burning of Rome on when he was behind it all along. And there are other reports that, well, actually not other reports, but uh, the end of the book of Acts says that no man forbade Paul. He had his own hired house and no man forbade Paul. Some people interpret that to mean Paul was free and no longer in prison so he could come and go wherever he wanted to. But that could also mean that he was under house arrest rather than in a dungeon somewhere. So we don't know exactly, know for sure. There's no exact historical uh, reference that we can go to. But Paul seems to indicate at least at the end of the writing of the book of Hebrews that he plans to come back to Jerusalem. We don't have record that he did. Then he says, for the third time, about those that have spiritual rule. Third time in the book of Hebrew, or in the uh, 13th chapter of Hebrews, verse 24, salute them that have the rule over you, spiritual rule over you, and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Now, what does that mean? That means he's not writing this to the pastors. He's writing this to the Jews. He's writing this to the common man. He's writing to those who are being influenced and pulled away and swayed by the, 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 the Jewish religious leaders who are commanding them to offer sacrifices and keep the law of Moses. This is not written to the pastors. It's written to the common man. It's written to the everyday guy, the person that's being affected by legalism. Well, that, we qualify for that, don't we? book of Hebrews is unique in so many ways. It's unique in the fact that it identifies what we can compare our religious experiences. And most of us have come out of some kind of religion or some kind of religious experience. And every religion has a, rule, has a set of rules that if you do these things, then you'll be spiritual or you'll be okay with God or you'll be something. Every religion has that. And in every case, all you've got to do is substitute whatever that religious notion is for Judaism or the law that Paul talks about, and it's exactly the same situation. The bottom line is very simple. Christianity is better than any religion that there is. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with God. And because it's based on the finished work of Jesus, you're okay with God already. Now, that shouldn't be an excuse for us to live any way we want to, but rather it should be an incentive for us to live according to the principles that the Holy Ghost said that those who are born again and in the family of God will produce in their lives. Thank God that we can produce fruits of works of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit and not the work of the flesh. Amen? <sighs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the precious Word of God. Thank you, Father, for the finished work of Jesus. Thank you that because we are born again, we can know that we are not to be judged by any other people, by our faith, by our confession of faith, by our stand in faith, by our belief in the Holy Ghost, by our belief in the name of Jesus, belief in healing or any such thing that Jesus accomplished for us. Not in meats or drink or any rules or regulation that any other group has. But thank you, Father, that we're free in Christ because his work, his sacrifice brought us into right relationship with you. Father, our prayer is that we would produce these things, these works of righteousness that the Holy Ghost identified in Hebrews 13 because we're kings and priests unto you. 
Not so that we can become something in you, Father, but because we've already been made by the blood of Jesus, the righteousness of God. Thank you, Father, for the privilege to live Jesus' life here on the earth. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here with us for this six-month endeavor in the book of Hebrews. God bless you. Have a great week.